I'm Chuck Smeaton, and this is the Cosmos Podcast, brought to you by the Royal Institution of Australia. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land where I speak to you from today, and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. So welcome to a Cosmos Insights podcast, where we talk to scientists in Australia about the impact of their work. In this episode, we're talking birdsong. Why do they sing? How do they learn? What happens if they can't hear each other? Cosmos science journalist Imma Perfetto talks to Dr. Dominique Potvin, a behavioural ecologist, evolutionary biologist, ornithologist and senior lecturer in animal ecology at the University of the Sunshine Coast to find out what we know about chirps, chortles and the science of song. We've all heard the gorgeous sounds that birds make in the morning, but why do some birds sing and others don't? I'm here with Dr. Dominique Potvin, who is an ornithologist at the University of the Sunshine Coast here in Australia. Uh, Dominique, thank you so much for being here. Could we start off just by telling me a little bit about, you know, what birdsong actually is and why some birds do it? Yeah, so... It's it's funny because like a lot of things in biology, not every scientist agrees as to what birdsong actually is. Um, but generally speaking, we consider uh, song to be slightly different from what we might call calls or other vocalizations. Song in particular is produced by songbirds, so the group passerines, and they have particular structures in their brain as well as in their throat that allow them to create very uh, complex, uh, sometimes very complex melodies and sounds that they string together that, yeah, we just find a little bit more complex than calls and other calls. Um, The biggest thing that we know about song, though, is that it has to be learned. So, Begging calls, alarm calls, contact calls, things that are done by pretty much every bird. They just know how to do it when they're, when they hatch. Um, Wow. (laughs) However, yeah, but however, songs actually need to be learned. So there has to be some kind of interaction with another, um, usually adult bird of their species um, that sort of teaches them what to sing and how to sing. And then they go through this, uh, these stages of uh, listening, practicing, babbling kind of like babies do and then perfecting yeah and then perfecting (laughs) that song um and then you've got you know close-ended learners so once they learn their song that's what they've got for most of their life um and then open-ended learners so things like mimics like superb lyrebird that can learn different sounds and songs and learn how to to produce them pretty much throughout their entire lives so yeah bird song the, the biggest thing is that it's learned the other thing is that for the most part, birdsong is used for particular purposes. So while calls are often used for things like begging, like I said, or for creating an alarm, so mm-hmm. warning others of danger, song is usually used for some kind of mating ritual, whether that's attracting members of the opposite sex or for defending a territory. Um, wow. And, you know, you can do that solo or you can do that as a duet or as a chorus um, but it's usually something to do with 
with those mating behaviors. So that's that song for you. And like I said, not all birds do it, but um, yeah, those that do got quite a variety of, of sounds that talented. they made. Yeah, they are. Yeah, it is. It's quite a, you know, I can't make most of those sounds. So. Oh my God, no. And can you tell me a little bit about what your recent research into birdsong involves? So a big part of my research is just trying to understand how the environment um, actually affects what a bird sounds like. So when you have an environment that is either like full of trees or has a bunch of background noise like water rushing or um, other you know, animals, what that does is that can you know mask or absorb certain sounds. And so they don't travel in that environment very well. And so what we see is that birds will learn certain songs that actually fit really well acoustically in their environment. So they don't echo or they're very clear in particular situations. And so, you know, you can, you can compare the same species across, say, like different islands or different habitats and say, okay, well, these guys sound a little bit different to these guys. Um, and it's because they're actually occupying slightly different habitats with different acoustics and, and that affects what they sound like. One of the biggest questions I've been looking into is how cities provide that new uh, kind of a new habitat type Mm. that is very specific in terms of its acoustics you've got big buildings that that make things echo and you've of course got this overwhelming amount of of noise that is produced by humans which is very um pervasive and it's usually very um specific in in how low it is we we are very uh, we are very rumbly species acoustically <laughs> most Makes of the sense. thing machines and vehicles <laughs> that we make make a very low frequency sound and so um i've been looking you know over the past 10 to 15 years into how birds actually sound different in cities and and around human habitation and what's sort of the implications of this research why is it so important to know how we affect birds in that way so if you can't be heard <laughs> you don't mate, right? Because song is really important for mating. And I mean, other calls as well. If you can't be heard, then maybe you're not going to warn others of predators, etc. So what we find is that in a lot of cities or even noisy areas that are natural, but still experience a high level of noise, say right near airports or freeways, some species are very successful and other species are not. And we do know that noise, even if you know you just pretend that there's a road there and you just have the noise, it actually motivates species to leave an area. And even if they stick around in the area, we've also found that they have a harder time learning their their songs. So all of these things can impact how well you know an individual or a population can how well they do in urban or human affected areas. And so it does play into things like establishing potential policies around noise and the amount of noise we make in different areas and you know where you're going to put a major road through a protected area um, or an area that has species that might be very susceptible or or vulnerable to noise. Um, and so you know we d- we are trying to work on really establishing noise as a as a more major source of pollution than what it's traditionally been thought of um, as. Yeah, Yeah, no, that makes sense. You're listening to the Cosmos Podcast with Emma Perfetto talking to Dr. Dominique Potvin. 
And don't forget to visit cosmosmagazine.com for more great content. Now let's get back to the world of birdsong. Pivoting a little bit, thinking about your career as a scientist, looking back, is there, you know, one day maybe that stands out to you as your best or even your worst day as a scientist? This is a really hard question. <laughs> I guess science like is full of, you know, these major highs and major lows. Um, I've had some interesting experiences in the in the field, especially. I thought so. Um, I do a lot of field work, yeah, recording birds and um and running around there. I do have one memory of um when I was recording some birds in Canada. We were we were on the radio and on, on the radio I heard somebody say that there was a, a bear in the area, so just to, you know, be aware. It was a black bear, I think. Mm-hmm. Um and so, you know, you're on the lookout. I was like, okay, well, I set myself I set my stuff down, my recording equipment, all my microphone and my headphones and everything. Um and I went, I think I went off to like go to the bathroom in the bushes or something. And, <laughs> and I and I was like, okay, I'll come back. Like I was keeping my eye out. I had my binoculars and um I saw the bear and I was like, oh shoot. So I I climbed up a little hill so I could see it better. And then it proceeded to lie down literally a meter away from my recording equipment and take a nap. So oh, I was pretty Lord. much <laughs> I was pretty much stuck on this hill um with just my binoculars. I think I had a water bottle maybe for like three hours just waiting for this bear to have its nap. And then it eventually got up and walked away, but it was not like I was going to just, uh, you know, approach it and be like, Hey, can I just grab my, <laughs> my stuff? Um, yeah. Wait yeah. To see <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I mean, it's, I mean, like, that's almost like the best and worst. Cause it's really cool to see a bear, but also like, you know, it's nerve wracking and, uh, you're also losing a lot of hours of field work just because a bear decided to take a nap. Yeah. Oh my <laughs> so. gosh. That was amazing. Thank you so much. And I guess to finish off, as an ornithologist, you know, could you talk to me a little bit about the opportunities or maybe limitations of doing your work here in Australia? Yeah, so I'm I'm Canadian, so I've done a lot of work in in the Northern Hemisphere and the Southern Hemisphere. And there is a really big difference in the amount of knowledge that we have about the birds in, in each of these places. Birds are much less studied in in Australia, and um, we. It's funny because when I was, you know, when I when I start work on a new species, say, I like to do a bit of background research, and it's often like really hard to find more than just the basics on yeah. on certain species in Australia. So it can be very challenging because you don't, you know, you have to sort of establish a baseline for things like populations and and individual behaviors and things like that. But at the same time, it just opens up this huge number of opportunities because, you know, you get to be the person to to figure that stuff out and you get to ask these really basic questions to sort of start things off. So it it is it's a, you know, two sides to the mm. to the story and and yeah, it's challenging, but it's also really fun. Amazing. Thank you so much. The weather's good too. Oh, the weather. <laughs> <laughs> that too, you're on the Sunshine yeah. Coast. Yeah. Beautiful weather all the time. Exactly. <laughs> it's nice. <laughs> no, it's not. It doesn't snow on you very much, which is always nice. So. Thank you so much. All right. No worries. Have a good day. You too. Bye. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode. Remember that you can head to cosmosmagazine.com via the link in the description for more great content. 
You can also subscribe to Cosmos Magazine, Australia's only science print magazine, and Cosmos Weekly with its unique approach to how science, news and the economy intersect. Podcast listeners can get both products at a special price using the coupon code you will also find in the description. And remember, if you support science and its communication, please support our work at the Royal Institution of Australia. I'm Chuck Smeaton, and today's interview was conducted by Emma Perfetto. Thank you. Thank you.